0: Welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. We're getting in the stretch run of the college baseball season right now. Bulldogs sit at 33-10 and 10 overall and 14-7 and 7 in the Southeastern Conference through seven weekends. And Charlie, looking back at this past weekend, Bulldogs able to really kind of take care of business at home did what they needed to do against Texas A&M. And then last night, going on the road over to Charleston, playing the Citadel, the alma mater of Chris Lamona's State wins last night handily over the Citadel. So before we look at this weekend, let's look back at last weekend. And State really did everything in the past seven days that you have to do.
1: Absolutely. Last weekend was such a big thing. I think of SEC baseball. Sometimes I'm known for kind of using golf comparisons. Last weekend was kind of the Saturday of the tournament, right? You moved yourself into position. You've moved yourself now to close it out on that final round, and you did what you had to do. And it's interesting, you weren't necessarily impressive all the time, but you got a sweep, and that's, at the end of the day, what matters.
0: Won a couple one-run games. Walked the game off on Friday. And, uh, of course, you were over in Myrtle Beach doing a little running. And i tell you what – You kinda miss you kind of picked the perfect weekend because we went twelve innings on Friday, then we had to do eighteen innings on Saturday. I mean, that was a wipeout weekend. And I think back hey, I was tired. And I think back to Logan Tanner about what he had to do. And you could tell he was getting a little tired in that Saturday game, that second game of the doubleheader. And so things just kind of stand out at you here's what really just strikes me about about Mississippi State, and we talked about this on Sunday Coffee this past week, about Chris Lomonas and his time here at Mississippi State. 2019, then you know, early last year we had a couple of hiccups early in the season, but this year it really compares itself to 2019. Uh, when you look at the schedule, we've really – taking care of every team we're supposed to take care of. When you start looking at the, the losses of the season, I guess that Kent State loss early in the year, but they had that one guy, they had the Aldrich, the right-handed guy that really kind of shoved it at us in that Saturday game, who was really good. Had to have some one-run games. Won a couple this past week. Had a couple you know, walk-off wins against Tulane early in the year. But at the end of the day, when you look at what we've done to this point through 43 games, State has won the games they're supposed to win.
1: You get outside that top quadrant, outside of the top 50, and they're 22-2. They're winning in the midweek, and they've had their moments, as you say. Look, it took a Luke Hancock home run, a Tanner Allen base hit. You had to have a lot of things go right at times to win some of those games earlier in the year, but you won. And ultimately, that's what baseball's about, right? We're not playing for style points. You're playing for wins, And Mississippi State has been getting those. And it's easy, I think, at times, too, to look at a team and say, but you had to do this, you had to do that. I think some of those games early in the year where you had to scuffle a little bit, you had to make some things work, you had to push some buttons to get things to happen your way, couldn't you see that coming back a little bit in that ball game on Friday, the experience of having been there, the experience of a guy like Tanner Allen who's had multiple big hits this year? All those things is just a little bit of experience you put in the bank and you take it with you to the plate and you win a ball game.
0: It's my UNLV approach. I think back to UNLV, 1991. It's been a long time now. Jerry Tarkanian? Yep. Stacy Augman, that entire team. That was you know, Larry Johnson who was undefeated the entire season. And then all of a sudden Duke in the Final Four in the semifinal gets close. They had not been close all season long. And I think you kind of take that into a lot of sports. If you have a team that's winning, and it may be in travel ball, it may be in basketball, it it may be in any sport that you can play, and you blow people out the entire season, and then all of a sudden it comes into a situation of we're in a tight game, the nervousness is there, the crowd is into it, and it's unfamiliar territory. I think that's one of the reasons that winning those games early in the year that walk-off from Luke Hancock, that walk-off from Tanner Allen and back-to-back days against Tulane, winning those close games. And looking back, yeah, you were supposed to win those games. But looking back and having the experience, like you just said, of winning those games helps you on Friday night. Because I go back to the point that we talked with Chris Lamonis about a couple of weeks ago. Charlie, you and I have talked about this. We talked about it in Sunday Coffee. It just seems like late in games. This is like when Alex Box was built in Baton Rouge. You just feel like, no matter what the score is, if you're within three or four runs in the last three at-bats, you feel like you've got a chance to win. And to be honest with you, you feel like better than not, you're going to win games.
1: I absolutely felt like Mississippi State was going to win that game on Friday once you hand the ball to Landon Sims because you figure he's going to stay out there four or five innings, four or five weeks, whatever it takes. So he's Once he gets the ball, like he, it's locked the doors. We're not leaving till we've won this thing. And it has to give your hitters a lot of confidence. And on the other side, it has to demoralize a Texas A&M a little bit to say we were ahead, we had our chances, and now we got to deal with this guy. You just feel really good about your chances. If you can get Tanner Allen a swing with a guy on base, if you can get Landon Sims the ball in a tie ball game or a game you're leading, you feel really good about where you are. What RPI are you using?
0: I'm a Warren Nolan guy. Okay, that's what I'm using. Okay, so quad one, 11 and eight, quad two, 11 and one, have not had a quad three game this year, and then quadrant four, 11 and one. Okay, so here's the thing kind of going back to that point a minute ago about winning the games you're supposed to win. And when you start looking at building RPIs in state right now, according to Warren Nolan, and the reason I like Warren Nolan is because it just, it just sorts better. It looks better. It's easy just to kind of crawl through a little bit easier than some of the other RPIs. But I look at who you lose to and what their RPIs are. And that's how you build RPI is not losing to those quad four teams, those bad losses. Okay, so let's look back at our ten losses right now. Second game of the year, first weekend against TCU. Their RPI is right above us. They're number two. They're hot right now. TCU is 33-10. You look at Tulane. Tulane, we lost that first game. Braden off, greasing up that ball. Well, we thought he was. Kind of shoved it that night against us. 71 RPI, and Tulane continues to climb. Kent State is the bad loss. That was back on March the 6th. We talked about Aldrich, but Kent State has gotten better. You know, you look at Kent State about three weeks ago, their RPI was like 220. Right now it's 153. We lost that 9-5 to game in the Saturday game. So they're at 153. That's your bad loss. LSU and Baton Rouge, their RPI is 23. Arkansas, and I know we had three losses against Arkansas, but they're the RPI number one team in the country. Ole Miss, you lose the second game to Ole Miss. They're number 10. Vanderbilt, number four. So those are the losses that you have this year. And so five of your ten losses came between Vanderbilt and Arkansas, number one and number four. That's half your losses right there. And then the other one is to number two. So that being said, we all said getting to this point was going to be the tough thing for state. Now, you go on the road to South Carolina this weekend. Carolina's RPI is number 15. So even if you lost a game, even if you lose two games at South Carolina, it's not going to be as detrimental as you possibly think. Now, the last two weekends, you've got Missouri coming in here next week at 123. You've got a midweek game against Jacksonville State at 116, and then Alabama's 29. So to say all that, to say this, it's going to be really hard to play your way out of hosting. It's going to be really hard to play your way out of being a national seed, to be honest with you.
1: And so now the question becomes, what are we playing for? Are we playing for a national seed? Or do we dare start to think about where we stack up in the SEC and do we have a chance at an SEC title? I think you do have a chance. I think you're going to have to go no worse than 7-2 and two to end it, which means you really feel like you need to take this series this weekend.
0: I think Vanderbilt's like 14 and 7. And hey, I'll tell you what, let's look at all this stuff as far as the schedule. Who's got what left in that last segment? Before we go to that last segment and talk about what's coming up for us, we've got a couple of great interviews this week. Coming up next, Charlie and I are going to sit down with Ray Tanner, the athletic director at South Carolina. Of course, State going on the road to Carolina this weekend and taking on the Gamecocks. He really built that power at South Carolina. Here's what I want to ask him, Charlie, is we talk about Ron Polk. We talk about Skip Bertman of kind of setting the tone on the SEC. Ray Tanner was not in the SEC at the time. And then when they were kind of setting the tone, South Carolina wasn't in the SEC. He built the national power in Columbia. They won back-to-back national championships. They built a nice new ballpark over there. They actually played for the College World Series championship in three consecutive seasons. He stepped away 2012 to be the athletic director. And just to get a kind of an idea – of what's going on at South Carolina and how they built that program at Carolina. And then later in the show, we're going to talk to Brent Rooker. Of course, had that great 2017 season. He won the Triple Crown. He and Rafael Palmero, the only two players in SEC history who have won the Triple Crown. Of course, that's batting average, home runs, and RBIs in a season. So we'll talk to Ray Tanner and Brent Rooker this week on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau, go with the home team at Farm Bureau. They have agents in every county in the state of Mississippi. Tremendous service. If you have any questions about any kind of insurance, just go to your local Farm Bureau office, and they've got great agents everywhere to help you with the best rates. So check them out at favorates.com and go with the home team. Back with a talk with the Athletic Director at South Carolina. Ray Tanner will join us on the other side of the break. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Let's talk to Ray Tanner, the athletic director at South Carolina. This conversation is brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing made right in the heart of Mississippi, down in Florence and central Mississippi on Highway 49 at Country Meat Packers. If you have any kind of tailgates this weekend, go by and get all that stuff in the storefront. They've got it made just for you. got ribs, they've had crab stuff, pork chops, Anything you can imagine. But, of course, the staple is that country-pleasing sausage. They make it right there in the back, and it is great stuff. A lot of lines right now. The original is great. The original is great, but a lot of their new lines are phenomenal as well. The jalapeno cheddar. When you start talking about the pineapple and pork, that's what you get at the ballpark at Duty Noble. But you can't go wrong. It's a Mississippi product, something that you can be proud of, something you can ship to your cousin that lives in South Carolina and say, let me tell you this, we got better sausage than you got in South Carolina. So ship it to them. But, hey, if you can't get it at your local grocer, go online, countrypleasing.com, and they will ship it to you. And So this conversation with Ray Tanner brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Well, he's the athletic director and former head baseball coach at South Carolina and the Bulldogs taking the road this weekend and playing in Columbia and Ray Tanner joins us now. And coach, I know you've been away from the game a little bit of time now, but now we're in week eight of the SEC portion of the schedule. I know baseball is fun for all of us, but nothing beats the stretch run in SEC baseball.
2: Well, there's no question about that. I, for many years, I was a part of that and it's. It, It's changed a little bit. It was always a gauntlet, but based on uh, the COVID returns of players, this league is absolutely stacked. I don't know what the results are going to be, but don't be surprised if we end up with three or four teams out of our conference in Omaha. There's some really good teams, a lot of great players in this conference right now.
0: Coach, you know, just looking back, we talked to Skip Bertman a few weeks ago, and, of course, I talked to Ryan Polk a good bit, and so much has been made about those guys and what they did back in the 1980s to kind of build the presence of baseball in the SEC. But then looking back to what you were able to do at South Carolina in building that process, playing at the Old Sarge and getting a new stadium and then winning back-to-back national championships – is there anything that you look back and say, you know, that was step one? What was step one of building that championship program over in Columbia?
2: Well, I'll tell you, you know, when I was coaching up at North Carolina State in the Atlantic Coast Conference, it was a good league. But the Southeastern Conference in baseball was, you know, it, it was a notch above, to be quite honest with you. And I had the opportunity to come into this conference with, with people like uh, Coach Polk and Coach Burtman and. Coach Baird and all the great ones and all those although the challenges challenges were were great you know you wanted to be a part of that and you know I had confidence you know with my coaching staff and Jim Toman who's the head coach at Middle Tennessee now he was with me and uh, stayed with me for seventeen years we thought we could we thought we could get some players and we knew overcoming those programs that you mentioned would be difficult but we felt that you know we could get in position and and I'll be honest with you. I took I took the blueprint of Coach Burtman, Coach Polk, Coach Baird. I spent time with those guys. I did two years with Coach Burtman in '95 and '96, and Coach Polk was on that staff. So I, I was um, I was a I was a thief. I was a sponge when it came to what worked and what they did to be successful, and I brought a lot of those things back to my program and you know, it made a difference, and we were we were able to, to climb the ladder a little bit and get in a position to have some success.
1: What was the recruiting philosophy for you? We talked a lot about Mississippi State's recruiting history. We can go through the list of guys who almost got here, guys that we signed but elected to go pro, and I look at some guys that you got to campus, a so Jackie Bradley Jr. who becomes the MVP of the World Series in 2010. I think Jordan Montgomery was pitching every fifth night for the Yankees right now. What was the philosophy? Was it, I'm going to go out and get the best players I can get or did you try to stay away from guys who you thought would be top draft picks? How did you attack it?
2: That's a great question. By the way, Merrifield Homer for the Kansas City Royals last night but, you know, we would go out, we would see those guys and, you know, those, those guys that you're going, well, he's going to get drafted too high. How much time do we spend there? Is it going to be worth it? And quite honestly, I would often rely on the moms. The, the, the moms seem to be more and more so than the dads. The moms would end up telling you this is the way it's going to be, and this is what's going to be important. I had a kid many years ago by the name of Drew Meyer, who was a second-rounder by the Dodgers, and his mom told me from day one he's going to school. And I said, well, I, I, I think he'd like to sign, and y- your husband would probably be okay if he signed. And she said, he is not signing. So he didn't sign. He came to school, and he became a first-rounder in three years. So you, you do take a risk sometimes, but if it's calculated, you know, it can be worth it. But, you know, if you just jump in, if you just jump in and say, I'm going to get the best that I can get, you're probably not getting that second choice. Which ends up making a, making it hard for you to put a great team on the field. But, You know, it, it's not a, it's not a perfect science, but uh, you do have to calculate. I know Mississippi State and and Coach Lamonis and his short step down there. He's he's been able to land some really good ones.
0: Talking to Ray Tanner, the athletic director at South Carolina, and the former baseball coach at South Carolina. And Coach, you mentioned a moment ago about the number of scholarship dollars that you could give and trying to figure out how much money to give a kid to come to school. You know, it's been a hot-button topic around the Southeast for a long time. And Coach Polk, and Charlie and I grew up listening to Coach Polk, and, of course, if you were coaching with him, you understand how how adamant he is about a subject, and that's the 11.7. And so many times in college baseball, we hear that hot-button topic of scholarships and 11.7. But at the end of the day, just looking at the makeup of the NCAA and you're working in administration now, is that a situation where it's 11.7 and it kind of, it is what it is? Or do you think that has a chance ever of going up at all?
2: Well, I I don't like, I I don't like those, you know, that, that phrase, it is what it is and we just got to live with it. I don't like that. I think that, you know, there's, there's times that you make changes. We've done it in other sports. And I think that it's certainly time to do it in baseball. I'm, I'm a huge, I have two daughters. I'm a huge proponent of, of title nine and gender equity, but for what's going on in college baseball across the country, the stadiums that have been built, the revenue has been produced. and, And we know that, you know, there's not probably 25 schools that are producing revenue as far as operating in the black, but we're still producing revenue to offset expenses it should be a head count sport. There's no doubt in my mind that it should be. And whatever you need to do on the female athletic side needs to be done if that's the case. But, you know, to go recruit a young man that may be first, second, third rounder, and you say, well, that's the great news. You're going to come play, but we're going to give you 50, 50% maybe. And that seems just so out of line. I, I, I think it should be a head count sport, whatever it is, 27-4, 25 or 30, whatever the the right number is. That's the way that I think it I think it could be and should be and I hope that uh, you know I get a chance to see a time in the next few years that we get there. I, I do think there's more momentum now than there has been in the past. Maybe it's just more conversation. But uh Coach Paul, you know, he's been passionate for many years and you know, don't tell him I said this, but he's right about 95% of the time in things that he says. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but,
0: please don't uh, say that out loud. <laughs> I, w-
2: <laughs> I, w- I would li- I would, like to see it.
1: One of the things Bart and I talk about is just the growth of the game as a whole, and I think back as you start to look at becoming a headcount sport, I've made the argument that teams like Michigan making runs in the College World Series, you look at this year a Notre Dame team that's playing well, that the growth in the sport in the Midwest and to other parts of the country outside the Southeast and the West Coast would help with that. Am am I on the right track there?
2: I think you are on the right track. And and even before we get there, you look at a team like Notre Dame this year. You mentioned Michigan, Eric Package, and the job he's done up there, who spent a number of years in the South and at Vanderbilt. And um, Link Jarrett, who's a head coach at Notre Dame, you know, came – you know, played at Florida State. He was at Auburn. He was at East Carolina. Matter of fact, he has one of my players on his staff, Scott Wingo, who was a most valuable player in the College World Series. They know they know what it takes. The caliber of player you recruit to to be in a position to be successful, and um, I, I do believe that if we could go ahead count, there would be you know programs throughout the country that take a different different look at it. I you say, well, do you change the calendar? That becomes a another topic of conversation, but. They they've done pretty well, I think they're twenty one and eight if i if I looked at it correctly um in the a c c right now in the conference, so they're almost running away with with the league. but I think that it's a chance to continue to grow the sport, and we all know how much it's grown i mean when you you know I watch the network I watch network plus um s e c and you see the crowds in starkville and in Oxford and in Arkansas, and you know we're still you know fifty percent here. But it's it's a different we're in a different place than we have many years ago and the caliber of player that is coming through it's um, you know reducing the number of minor league teams we're growing we're growing big leaguers in this conference and, and other conferences throughout the country that it's a great game and I, I think that we need to make a step in the right direction as a headcount sport
1: coach mississippi state coming to south carolina this weekend and one of the things those watching on tv will see is a sticker on the back of the south carolina batting helmets that just says doc and for those who don't know doc refers to ronald doc casper a guy who actually has uh, his phd or had his phd from mississippi state his son played tennis here but a long time member of the South Carolina athletic training staff, actually faced Bart and I talked about this. Faced Mickey Mantle in the minor leagues during spring training. I was wondering if if you could just talk about what Doc Casper and what he meant to South Carolina and to your baseball program and why that sticker will be on the back of those helmets.
2: Uh, you know, I tell you, and I don't want to, I don't want to talk too long. But you know, when I got to to South Carolina in the summer of 1996, we began. Uh, meeting in august with our new players i did not know doc casper and he came to my first team meeting i wasn't sure why he was in my meeting i thought maybe the athletics director had sent him i thought maybe he was on his staff i knew i knew he held a position in sports psychology but i really was uncomfortable that he just kind of came to my first team meeting but i didn't feel like that i should say uh dr casper this is a a private meeting and I I need for you to not attend. I, I didn't uh I still remember to this day that I, I wasn't confident in telling that so I, I said, Come on in and um that first meeting, you know, as a new coach I had to I had to share some messaging. There's a new sheriff in town. We couldn't do things differently and we became friends. So he, he worked with our team the entire sixteen years that I coached um the first the first few weeks, first couple of years, it was like doc i'm you know i'm I'm good, our players are good. we appreciate you being around, you're welcome anytime, but as far as your professional engagement with players, I think that has to evolve, and he was okay with the the evolution. But I noticed as time went on, there were more players that leaned on him with his expertise in psychology. And then, as we became closer, he started sharing things with me personally about how I was managing or how I was treating players or how I was coaching on a particular day. And it started to resonate that, you know, he would tell me sometimes your message was great, your delivery was horrible. And I'm like, Doc, I had to get my point across. He said, well, you did it. You lost. And, you know, it was like one of those deals where I continually got coached. Our players had a confidant. You know, it's not all about Runs, hits, and errors. It's about what's going on in the classroom, off the field, families, you know, personal issues. And you can't be at your best unless you have some sort of counseling to deal with that. And he was that person. And he became very, very close to our team. As time went on, it remained remained that way. And people would always ask me, you know, we were getting more televised games. They'd go, who's that? who's that dapper gentleman that always stands behind you? And I, w- I would laugh, and I'd say, well, he's always looking for the camera. But it's uh, Dr. Casper who works with our team. But what an asset. I mean, he really took, you know, I call it the clutter. He took the clutter out of the team. It was your focus needs to be where it is. And he was such a, a special person. I mean, he would tell me on particular days, whether it's practice or a game, that, hey, if you get an opportunity – you need to lift up this player or that player. You know, they had two tests today or got girlfriend issues or whatever the case may be and he'd say, You need to need to make sure that you're cognizant that, you know, it might not be his best day. And those things were extremely helpful. And, you know, it's it's like I would always his famous his famous saying was, you know, the message is great, but the delivery is more important. And you know, I always would hang on to that and and try to grow from that and uh he was a he played a huge role he helped me grow as a manager as a coach in how to do things the right way to give you the best chance for optimal results and you know that's extremely prevalent in college athletics today.
0: Talking with Ray Tanner, the athletic director at South Carolina, and Coach, before we let you go, you, you mentioned you were the new sheriff in town. It's kind of funny. We saw the sheriff of Octave Hall County walking down the streets just a minute ago. He's the father-in-law of your football coach. So if you need any help <laughs> with Shane now, we, we know we're, we know where to get Beamer straight, okay? So we, we saw, I, Steve, <laughs> saw Steve a minute ago.
2: I got to tell you a quick story. He was in town for our spring game and he was with uh coach beamer the legend coach beamer not not shane beamer and they were up at the baseball game and i the both the two of them were together we were expecting rain the next day so we postponed our spring game till a day later and we we had a conversation i said i can't believe we got this young young whippersnapper shane beamer coaching our football team and he can't play in the rain what are we going to do with this guy <laughs> and uh so we we, we we had a good laugh but we do love our shane beamer and uh you know, we we look forward to the father-in-law being around and and uh, the legend up at Virginia Tech too. So we're we're looking forward to the new era starting with Shane Beamer,
0: Coach. Before I let you go, real quick, we've been around college baseball a good bit. Charlie and I have been around this league a good bit, and being able to travel to the venues. Baseball is just different. I mean, it's it's a different sport. And when you start talking about competing in the best league in the country, in the Southeastern Conference, whether it be football, whether it be softball, whether it be volleyball or any sport, it's, it's a very tight-knit group, but it's a very competitive group. But it seems like baseball is just a little bit different. The camaraderie with the coaches – the, uh, everybody wants to win, don't get me wrong, but what makes baseball different? It just seems like there is. it's a big family. Even though you do have your rivals, even though you do want to win every single weekend, it just seems like the baseball coaches and the baseball family in the SEC is very tight.
2: I agree with you. And, you know, I think it's just the uh, emphasis, the pride that started at the top with the presidents of universities, athletic directors, recognizing many years ago that baseball can be special in the southeastern conference and you know facilities started to spring up the the emphasis was there getting good players into our league and and players across the country want to come to the southeastern conference and even though they might not have a tie to a particular school they want to play in this league because it means it just means more you know not to go to our our mantra of the sec but that's what it is. I mean, it's a fever pitch atmosphere. It's an opportunity to compete against the best. And if you can succeed, you're probably headed headed to the double A, to the big leagues in a short period of time. And um, it's just a special – it's hard to put a, a word on what it is in our league, but it's it's just the fact that it's it's like that fever pitch that you have when football gets ready to go in the fall. That's the way baseball is in the southeastern conference. And you mentioned, you mentioned down the backstretch, crutch time, and it. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna change. But you know as well as I do, there's, there's some good teams in this league, even if they're seventh or eighth. But there's probably three or four for sure that could go out and win a national championship. You know, come Omaha time.
0: Cuz we appreciate you joining us today. Great stuff as always. Look forward to seeing you guys this weekend.
2: All right, travel safe. We'll see you at uh, Founders Park.
0: And that's Ray Tanner, Athletic Director at South Carolina. Charlie, i tell you what, when you start talking about Ray Tanner, you hardly ever hear any bad words about Ray Tanner. He's just a good dude. He
1: is, and the thing about him, it's always interesting, isn't it? You look at a guy in a uniform on the field and you see how they act, and you really don't get a feel for what they're like as a person. But Ray Tanner, every time I've had a chance to interact with him over the years, be it at tournaments or what have you, Just a good dude. Seems like a guy you'd just love to hang out with and talk baseball. That if you ever got around a table, you could find yourself at about 2 in the morning still asking questions.
0: No doubt. A lot of fun as always. So when Charlie and I come back, that conversation brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. And when we come back, we'll talk to Brent Rooker, who had that great 2017 season at Mississippi State, that great Bulldog career. And right now, he made his way to the big leagues with the Minnesota Twins. Right now in Triple A, with the Twins' Triple A team out of St. Paul. And so we'll talk to Brent when we come back. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back out of left field presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Great conversation with Ray Tanner just a moment ago. And now we talk to Brent Rooker. Brent Rooker, of course, having that great Bulldog career, came from Memphis, played an evangelical Christian. And so Brent Rooker, going to talk with him. And, of course, this conversation is brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland producing the finest U.S. farm race catfish anywhere in the world. They're over in Itabina, Mississippi, just west of Greenwood. And they have... They're heartland catfish in all local grocers. You can get them frozen in the big boxes, or you can go to great restaurants in the southeast and across the country, and one of which is the Catfish Hole in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The Catfish Hole, they have those great catfish fried dinners. They have the grilled dinners. It's unreal. They do a great job at the Catfish Hole in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and they proudly serve the great U.S. farm raised catfish from right here in the state of Mississippi at Heartland Catfish. And let's go to the phones. There are two guys in SEC history who have won the Triple Crown. One is Rafael Palmero. He was back on campus a couple of weeks ago. And this guy, Brent Rooker, joins us on the Out of Left Field Show. And Brent – you know, looking back at, uh, at how you got to Mississippi State, evangelical Christian out of Memphis. Hey, Houston Harding, another evangelical guy from Denim Walls, is, man, really pitching well. We went five innings in the, the game on Saturday in the second game, so he's pitching well. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But looking back about how you got to Mississippi State, when did that recruiting process begin and who did it begin with?
3: Yeah, man, uh, appreciate you having me on. Um, it it kind of started, I guess, the, my junior year uh, in high school, kind of middle of the season, and it was uh, it was Coach Burroughs, Lane Burroughs, that initially came and, and contacted me and came to watch me play and kind of started the whole recruiting process. Uh, I guess probably midway through my junior baseball season, like I said, um, but Mississippi State was kind of the first uh, big name school to show me show me any interest. So you know, when I started getting those calls and talking to Coach Burroughs a little bit, it was pretty exciting for me. Um, just kind of the idea that I had the opportunity to go play at a place with uh, you know with the history and tradition that we have.
1: It's interesting, Brent. We've watched so many young guys coming up through the system, and people get this idea that if they're not hitting 350 as a freshman, well, they must not be very good. I go back and I look at your numbers. You got better in every category. It seems like the entire time you were here, it just made huge strides from year to year. What was it for you? Was it experience? Was it change of approach? Was it pitch recognition? What was it that you know took you from being a a guy hitting two fifty seven with a couple of home runs to a triple crown winner in three years?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of it's just experience and getting the bats against quality arms every day. Um, whether that be fall scrimmages or throughout the season, um, you know, early non conference play and the conference play. Just kind of just coming from a you know a smaller high school where I played, we didn't we necessarily didn't see the the, the type of arms that you see week in and week out in the SEC. So having, having the opportunity, you know, first the first year that I redshirted to kind of be exposed to that kind of pitching, that kind of talent in the fall and then work on some stuff in the spring when I wasn't necessarily playing games and kind of carrying everything over um, into the next three years, just working on, like I said, just getting, getting as many bats as I could, um, trying to gain experience, trying to be able to recognize pitches a little bit better just from being able or from, from seeing them more frequently. Um, and kind of refining an approach and refining a swing that I thought would work, and then eventually, you know, after um, a bunch of a, a bunch of a bats and three years of experience, it paid off.
0: Talking with Brent Rucker, former Bulldog, of course, Triple Crown winner in the SEC, and then kind of along those lines, Brent, you know, we see it every year, and we saw it before you got here. We get, we saw it when when you got here. We see it now, and you you talk about young guys, and you talk about spin and seeing breaking balls, and just to kind of tag off that pitch recognition, just a moment, you know, early on in a, in a career, we talked to Jake Mangum. A couple weeks ago and Jake was was like and we asked Jake how would you have gotten Jake Mangum out early in your career and he said hey don't throw me a strike looking back at, at your career breaking balls specifically because so many times a fan sitting at home is saying why is he swinging at that ball and I think back to you late in your career it was almost like you were just going to spit on every breaking ball, and you were just looking for a guy to make a mistake with a fastball. How was how spin? How was dealing with spin tough for guys early in college? Yeah,
3: I mean, you're just not used to it coming out of high school, right? I mean, in, in a high school season, you'll see one or two, maybe three guys with a quality breaking pitch, and then you get to college all of a sudden, and you, you know you're you're in a place like Mississippi State where everybody on the team was their best was their high school team's best player, and every all of a sudden everybody can throw you know, can locate a fastball and they can throw at least one um, quality secondary pitch. It's just not something you're used to. And it, it, it takes a while to kind of grow accustomed to that and um, to develop a plan and, and, and a swing physically that, um, you know, has the correct fundamentals to allow you to lay off those pitches and then also put good swings on the pitches when no are left in the strike them.
1: Brent, you know, we talk about pretty swings, and so many times when you start going through that, you think of guys who are left-handed hitters with those pretty swings. It's just kind of appealing to the eye. But you have a very pretty and distinctive swing, and you talked about developing it. How did you develop your swing? Sometimes, you know, Rafael Palmeiro said he did it in the backyard with his dad. Everybody's kind of got their story. Where did the Brent Rooker swing come from?
3: Yeah, I mean, just like everybody else, it started in the driveway or in the backyard with my dad throwing me whipple balls or tennis balls or whatever. And then just, you know, going to the park on afternoons in the summer and him throwing me BP for however long I wanted to hit. And then just kind of, you know, as I grew up and, and, and had different coaches and kind of learned from, learned from uh, everyone I could and took, you know, one thing from the sitting coach that I like, took another thing from the sitting coach that I liked and just kind of gradually built that up. Um, until I developed something that you know, I was comfortable with and I thought I could repeat and I thought that, was, that I thought would play at a high level, you know, against high-level pitching. So it's a long process. It's never finished. Obviously, I'm still refining things now. I still have very specific things that I'm working to improve um, even at this stage in my career. So it's kind of a never-ending process, and that's kind of what makes it fun.
0: Talking with Brent Rooker, and Brent, along those lines of development, if Coach Polk is in the office with us and he's always talking about hey i'm going to get that kid up in the cape cod this year and i'm we're going to fix this problem we're going to we're going to do this we're going to do that you play in the cape cod how big is summer baseball say in the cape how big is that toward development of young players
3: yeah um it's i mean one it's it's a ton of fun getting to play with a different group of guys from all over the country and and go you know to a place you've probably never been before and just play baseball every day and it's it's nothing but pure baseball it's pretty much all you're there to do Um, it's a ton of fun and it's also really productive and that, you know, again, you're just getting at bats against really high level pitching. You're seeing the best college arms in the country, um, every single day, which is, which is a ton of fun And, and being able to talk to guys that from, like I said, from different schools who may have different approaches, may have different swing thoughts, just kind of learn as much as you can, being exposed to different ideas is, is something that's really valuable. Um, I think kind of that combined with the fact that you're just getting to play every day and not have to worry about anything else, um, makes you know makes those two months, you know those 50 games or, or whatever it is a really valuable time for, for college hitters.
1: Brett, we've talked to a couple of guys who are involved in major league coaching and we always enjoy hearing kind of what they see as the separation points. I'm curious as you face pitchers kind of moving up the ladder through the minor leagues to the major leagues, what becomes the difference in pitching between, say, a triple-A pitcher and a major league guy? Is it throwing the breaking pitch for a strike? Is it location? Is there something that just makes it a little bit harder to hit hit a guy in the majors than, say, in double-A?
3: Yeah, I think it's um, – I mean, obviously you have the elite guys in the big leagues who just have uh, just extraordinary stuff. So that That's what kind of separates them. Um, but for the most part, I think it's just the ability to pitch to a scouting report. I think it's the ability for a big league arm to – to kind of break down a hitter, know what he does well, know what he doesn't do well, and then just really execute pitches according to what that scouting report says. Um, we, we There's so much information on hitters these days from video and, and heat maps and swing tendencies and things like that, that they the pitchers really have any information they want on you as an individual. And I think a lot of the plans with separate guys is, is the ability to take that scouting report um, and formulate a specific plan based on what their stuff does, and then really be able to execute it and pitch directly to that scouting report to kind of make it tough on the hitter to um, to have the success that we want to have.
0: We're talking with Brent Rooker, former Bulldog. Brent, we talked to another former Mississippi State guy a couple of months ago, and Ben Jenkins, who started War Stick. And you know, you guys have have kind of gotten together. You're swinging the War Stick. Just kind of look at uh, you know what all other guys are using in the major leagues. Why did you decide to go with with WarStick?
3: Yeah, I mean, when I, when I first got drafted, we started talking. I thought the Mississippi State connection was really cool. Um, obviously, I, I I love what we have in StarCore. I love the family atmosphere we have. And being able to do something um, with another guy who experienced that and who's a part of that was, was really appealing to me. And then I thought they had a really cool product. They're very very different um in the way that they approach the game the way that they approach the bat making process the way that they kind of approach the marketing side of it than other bat companies which i thought was really really cool And then they have a great product um obviously which is which um is another huge reason why i chose them they've been really good to me um i love i've got my own model with them so i i, I think they do a really good job taking care of their guys and, and the quality of wood is good and i think my whole experience with them has just been awesome so um, it's been a huge blessing to work with ben Uh, he's super cool and it's a really great company to be with
1: brent one of the things that's been really kind of interesting to me being a mississippi state fan my whole life is the way that fans have just embraced that group of players that you were involved with and obviously embraced you and still keep up with you how much do you get to keep up with mississippi state and and what's going on here and how important is that connection to you
3: Yeah, I mean, I keep up as much as I can. Obviously, I don't get to watch as much as I would like just because we're playing a game every night or doing something every night. But um, I keep up via social media as much as I can, uh, make sure that I'm up to date with, you know, how we're doing as a team, uh, you know, which guys are doing well. And and it's it's a little tougher, obviously, because I don't have any coaching staff left that I've played for, but I'm still able to, to talk to Coach Limonis a little bit. I'm um, kind of staying up to date with what's going on down there. I try to keep up with the team as much as I can. I know they're having a really good year, and it's it's been fun to keep up with.
0: All right, Brent, before we let you go, just kind of looking, you know, at that 16 and 17 year, you win the SEC championship in 16, you win the Triple Crown in 17, and we hear all the time about the, the big crowds and the pressures and playing in front of the big crowds. Looking back at that time and sitting there saying, you know what, I was 20 years old and playing in front of ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people, and now all of a sudden you're making your way, you've played some of the big leagues. How do you think that helps you right now?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely an advantage having experienced atmospheres like that and having experienced crowds like that um, coming up through college and playing in hostile high environments, playing at LSU and Ole Miss, things like that, um, where you know the crowd's definitely not on your side. I think it plays a, plays a huge role and it's definitely an advantage stepping into a big league stadium, obviously, but you know the stadiums and the big leagues are a little bit bigger scale, and it's a little bit more, whatever media attention, exposure, whatever, you, whatever you want to say. But you know it's not a totally unfamiliar environment stepping into a big crowd, a big hostile crowd, and having to perform. So I think it's definitely an advantage, and it, it helps you out down the road.
0: Brent, we appreciate it. You having fun?
3: Yeah, having a blast. Looking forward to looking forward to seeing how this year plays out.
0: Awesome. Hey, great to talk with you as always.
3: Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And that's Brent Rooker. Well, Charlie, you look back at 17, that was a magical season for Brent Rooker.
1: What would you give to put him in your lineup right now, bat him fourth oh. in this
0: lineup? You
1: talk about things that could change a team. What a And I know you can't do that, but oh. if you could put a franchise tag on him and bat him fourth right now, bat
0: him third, bat him second, I don't care. Just get him in the order. Lead him off. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> Didn't down. we lead him off for a game? I think we let him off for like one game. Mangum wasn't in the lineup, and I think we let Rooker off. But we, we put him in the two-spot in the lineup behind Jake for a while, and he just flourished in that role. Man, what a great uh, great season, great guy, and always great to talk with Brent Rooker. So when Charlie and I come back, we'll have a final word. That conversation brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish, and make sure you go to the Catfish Hole in Fayetteville, Arkansas, the next time you head up to Fayetteville. Of course, they playing Arkansas in football this coming year, and so go ahead, and when you're planning out those meals, put the Catfish Hole in Fayetteville on that list when you go to Arkansas for football season. So, Charlie and I will come back with a final word. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back. Final segment of Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Charlie, two really good conversations, Ray Tanner and then Brent Rooker. So, just kind of looking at this weekend and looking at what's ahead of state. And we talked to Ray Tanner a minute ago about the stretch run of the SEC, and now we're in that stretch run, the final three weekends of SEC play. Let's look and see who's got who. When you start talking about the top three in the SEC East, the top three in the SEC West, let's start on the western side. Arkansas probably has the toughest stretch, to be quite honest with you, when you look at the last three weekends. Arkansas... This weekend, they have Georgia at home. Now, they have two of three at home, which is a good thing. They have Georgia at home, but they go to Knoxville and Tennessee, who's playing very well, especially at home. And then the final weekend of the year, they play Florida. So, Florida is playing very good right now. They won two out of three this past weekend at home against Vanderbilt. So, Arkansas, kind of a mixed bag. They get a couple of tough opponents, but they got two home series left.
1: Florida's an interesting team to me. I can't figure out from week to week whether they're the type of team that can take two out of three for Vanderbilt or they're going to get swept by South Carolina. They're just up and down. But that's a tough weekend to – if you look at back-to-back weekends, Tennessee and Florida, a couple of top ten teams. So, for Arkansas, they've got a chance to lose some games coming in.
0: Okay, let's stay on the western side. Of course, we know what we have at Carolina – Missouri at home, then at Alabama. Ole Miss is at A&M this week. That should be an advantageous weekend for the Rebels. Then they come home next week against Vanderbilt and then end their season at Georgia. Georgia's also a mixed bag team. You really don't know what you're going to get with Georgia. And you're seeing a little bit more of that over in the eastern side with, with Florida, with Georgia. Kentucky's got a couple of good wins in there, kind of mixed bags. You don't know what to expect. But Ole Miss has two road trips, but neither one of those road trips – really look on paper to be very very tough
1: and so you look then to that weekend in the middle that weekend with Vanderbilt and as a Mississippi State fan isn't the real thing you're looking for neither team sweep yes you do not need either team to sweep that series obviously because of where things sit if Ole Miss wanted to take two out of three you'd probably go ahead and take that but Ole Miss still has a chance to move up in those standings. I think it's going to be really tough for them to pass the number of teams they would have to to win the league. But that middle weekend I think is going to have a lot to do with how things shake out overall.
0: Talk about Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt leading the SEC East right now at 14-7, and seven, tied with Tennessee. Vandy is at home this weekend against Alabama, on the road against Ole Miss, then at home against Kentucky. You would say they probably have the easiest trip, other than the trip to Oxford. They're probably looking at a seven and two right here out of the last nine games.
1: Yeah, so I think you put yourself in the in the situation if you want to win the league in your Mississippi State, you're going to have to go. At, I think no worse than seven and two.
0: Tennessee, the last three weeks at Missouri. Arkansas at home then on the road at South Carolina so those last two weeks they got Missouri this week at Missouri I don't care where they play that game I don't care if they play that game in Tony Botello's backyard Tennessee's probably winning three that week now if Missouri can jump up and win one that helps helps us a little bit but Arkansas at home doesn't matter where you play play the Razorbacks Arkansas Arkansas is good and then at South Carolina We'll tell you on Monday. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll know soon. We'll we'll know exactly what you're looking at. So that's that's kind of what you're looking at here in the stretch run of getting to the SEC tournament. Now, top twelve teams make the SEC tournament this year, and that's the way it's kind of been it's I'm looking forward to the SEC tournament. That's one of the big things that I missed from last year is the and we talked to Ray Tanner a minute ago, you know, the camaraderie of the league. It's amazing when you go to the SEC tournament and you're at the the Winfrey Hotel, where it's the new hotel, is a Hyatt now. But you have eight teams that are staying there, and you're sitting out in the lobby, and you're talking with everybody. You, you see players talking with other players they played in the Cape with and other places, and you really tell that baseball is different. You see that baseball is different. And, it, and that's one of the things, and, you know, Ray Tanner didn't go there with a question I was going to talk about was when you get to postseason play sometimes, and first of all, when you think back to 2011, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years and you say, man, that daggum Kevin O'Sullivan. Man, Kevin O'Sullivan's terrible. Kevin O'Sullivan's an arrogant guy. I hate Florida. But when you go to the NCAA tournament, one of the first phone calls that you make when you're playing Florida State is to Kevin O'Sullivan, and you start talking about scouting reports. And, okay, you played these guys. The way that the league works together, the way the league coaches work together, the way the players, I mean, I know they jawed each other in the dugout. We had that at Vanderbilt. But I guarantee you when you're sitting at the Hyatt Hotel or the Winfrey Hotel, you're going to walk down sometime and you're going to see Mississippi State players and Vanderbilt players talking with each other. and It's just a big family. It's crazy. It's
1: going to be interesting to me. One of the things I wish I'd asked Ray Tanner about is the degree to which anyone should care about the SEC tournament. Go back to his two championships. In 2010, they went 0-2 in Hoover. Then they go and sweep through the postseason. 2011, they go one and two in Hoover and then go on to win the national championship. Can you make the argument, and I love the SEC tournament, whether it's basketball, baseball, there's just something cool about tournament atmospheres. It is. But can you make the argument that if you are a top team, if you are already a team, and, of course, this year it won't matter as far as seeding goes or unlikely to,
0: but can you make the case that the tournament really shouldn't matter? Okay, you look back to 2007 when we went to the College World Series. We went two in a queue. Of course, one of those was David Price. But I think just that extra breath of fresh air. I look at 2012 when we won the tournament. We were toast going into the next weekend against Florida State. and Sam- We never got Florida State. We got Sanford twice. So And does that contribute to the camaraderie, meaning – to some degree, the guys go over there a little bit less amped up. I think that I think that is a key, but I think it de- is dependent upon who you are. Now, if you're fighting to get in the NCAA tournament, if you're if you're trying to win two or three games over there to get a host spot, it's a little bit different. I mean, you look back, Rod Del Monaco, when they had Chris Burke at Tennessee, Rod Delmonico, Monaco, it was almost like they were the first team to go this route of I don't care. They go two in a queue over there every year. They didn't care as long as they got in the regionals and try to make some noise. I hate that I love that event. That's one of my favorite events. And Charlie and I, I, I think I'm going to go over there maybe every day. But I agree with your point. How important it is for the top-tier teams to go to the SEC tournament, I'm not sure.
1: Now, as a fan, oh, it's beautiful. You know, once they start playing, it's tough to turn it off. You know, for example, a couple of years ago when you were playing LSU, I, I couldn't go to bed at 2 in the morning thinking, ah, this game doesn't matter. Because well, it's still LSU over there. It's still LSU. And you and still, still want to beat them.
0: It's still palmonary, jumping up and down, whining and crying. That That's why you, you want to win. Okay, so now we're at the point. Hey, we get to uh, final three weeks of the year. At Carolina this weekend. Big weekend for state this weekend over at Founders Park. That's a tough place to play. That's a nice ballpark. You heard Ray Tanner talk a moment ago. Still 50% capacity at South Carolina. So you're not going to have the fans on top of you like you normally do. Hey, good show today. I enjoyed it as always. Go with the home team at Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau. Check them out at favorites.com, the best service, the best insurance you can possibly have in the state of Mississippi. And thanks to our other sponsors as well, Heartland Catfish, and, of course, the Catfish Hole in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and then Country Pleasing Sausage. And so until Sunday coffee, hey, after two games this weekend, hopefully we're talking having a good cup of Sunday coffee this week. Appreciate you subscribing to the podcast. A lot of you guys are subscribing and hitting that subscribe button, giving us that rating giving us some very good reviews on our page. We appreciate it. The show continues to grow exponentially. We thought it would flatten out, but now we're in the stretch run, and you guys are just keeping on, keeping on. The numbers are amazing. So appreciate you guys listening each and every week. And so until Sunday for Sunday Coffee, I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. You've been listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.